0: Hello and welcome back to the Whiskey Rebels, the only alcohol podcast where the hosts aren't getting drunk. I'm Josh Evans. I'm Drew Brackbill.
1: And I'm John Nelson.
0: And today we're back with another balanced, sober discussion about the philosophical, economic, and regulatory history of alcohol.
1: <laughs> All right. So today we're gonna change it up a little bit. The last few epi- two episodes we uh, talked about some U.S. laws. Uh, so we're gonna take a trip off over the Atlantic uh, to the wonderful, wonderful nation of germany the
2: sunny rhineland (laughs)
1: sunny sunny rhineland all right so today we're going to be talking about uh the german beer purity law known as the reinheitsgebot that's how it's pronounced yeah i think that's how it's pronounced yeah we looked it up on like youtube or something uh it's one of the oldest consumer protection laws in the world uh historians generally recognize it as the oldest one still in law in some form uh, and is widely seen as the reason for Germans, Germany's reputation as a beer powerhouse throughout the world.
2: Yeah, this is kind of like how Yingling calls itself America's oldest brewery, but what it really means is America's oldest brewery that's still brewing beers. <laughs> but yeah, as yeah. I guess
1: we discussed last episode, there's probably a bunch that got kicked out during Prohibition. Uh, there, and... uh, there were for sure. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: Well, you know, you can't really like knock down, or you can't really like put down Germany's reputation as a beer powerhouse just to the Rhine um because the Germans just love beer. I mean they drink something they love like it a lot. <laughs> yeah, they drink something like 104.7 liters per capita yearly, which is a lot. That's like 8.4 billion <laughs> liters of beer a year for the whole country. Like That's billion with a b. With a b. That's just an astronomical amount of beer if I've done my math right, which you know, there's a fair exactly chance. I don't exactly trust that. <laughs> there's a but, fair chance know. I haven't, I mean, but I helped them with it. I <laughs> like, had a math minor in college, maybe that means something. I it's still Does just, it still just No, it absolutely means nothing. It's hard to believe that 8.4 billion liters of beer. That's a lot of beer. <laughs> that's just an astronomical yeah, like amount stand, of beer. You like
1: put the number of people that are alive in the world, you line them up and you each give them a liter. And there's still beer
2: left over. Yeah, that's crazy. That's insane.
1: Anyway, uh, the Reinheitsgebot literally means purity order. Which I, I kind
0: of love that about, like, the German language. You have, like, these individual words that are super long, be- and it's just because they cram together a bunch of individual words, <laughs> to, or what would be individual words in English. It's fantastic.
2: Yeah, they just, like, kind of call it like they see it. Like, uh, Mouse, which means bat, literally just means flying mouse. Like, that's, like, that's pr- just how they name things. <laughs> not a
1: particularly creative language. Uh, but efficient, I, I guess, if you're trying to figure out what something means. So the Reinheitsgebot is the collective name for a series of regulations in Germany and the states of the former Holy Roman Empire, which limit the ingredients that can be used for making beer. The best known version of this law was canonized in Bavaria in 1516, but similar regulations predate the Bavarian order and modern regulations are quite different from the 1516 version.
0: Yeah, so the most influential predecessor of the modern uh, Reinhardt giblets was a law (laughs) first adopted in the great Overwatch reference in uh, in in Munich in 1487. Uh, After uh, after Bavaria was reunited, the uh, the Munich law was adopted across like all of Bavaria on April 23rd, 1516. So as Germany was being unified, Bavaria pushed for adoption uh, of this law on you know a national basis. Uh, so the original and best known uh, Gazoon Hide robot uh, required several things. First, it... Um, we're not going to cut this, but... No, of course we're not. You're
2: making a hash of this important exposition. No, I'm, it's a funny I'm, word. I'm you can make fun of the funny, funny. I'm, it's funny it's word. It's too funny. I'm doing a bit, Drew. I'm doing a bit... Okay, okay. she's doing a Greco thing. Okay. She's doing a Greco thing. <laughs>
0: um, so it required several things. So first of all, uh, beer made in Bavaria could only have three ingredients. Water, barley, hops. That's mm-hmm. it. Um, so this was to make sure that beer was pure and you know completely free of any substances that would create any kind of like off flavors or that, that might contaminate the beer. Yeah, like cocaine?
2: Well, I mean like cocaine, yeah, or I, we'll talk about this later, but like there were other substances that people had historically used to preserve beer, such as like hensbane and soot. Which, as it turns out, like aren't great to drink. Hold but... on, what is what is bane? Is it dangerous to hens? It's very dangerous to hens. <laughs> is, it, is it like that's rat? why it's called hen's bane. Is it like rat poison but for chickens? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's some kind of herb. I think it might be moderately hallucinogenic, but. Uh, well, then. I, I I, that again is a completely unqualified opinion based only
0: on the name. As are most of your. <laughs> as opinions. are the majority of my opinions. Ninety percent of
2: our opinions. Uh no, but that's it's something that's like not necessarily safe to put in beer, and that's what the. law was there for at least in part but it also set uh seasonal pricing controls for beer merchants and tavern keepers couldn't charge more than the set amount for a given volume of beer originally the limit was one pfennig per mass which i'm pretty sure pfennig is how that's pronounced basically a penny Uh, a a munich and penny anyway the limit that you could charge on beer under the original not the original but the 1516 bavarian bavaria wide uh, Reinheitsgebot law was you could charge one pfennig for mass per mass, which a mass was like a liter, from Michaelmas to Saint George's Day, i.e. from late September to late April. That certainly wasn't German accent. No, that was more of a that was more of an English. Eng- it's me, Scrooge. Um, i.e. from from late September to late April, you can't charge more than a pfennig for a mass, which again was about a liter. But from George's Day to Michaelmas, i.e. in the summer months, you could charge up to two pfennigs for a massive beer i.e. you could charge more over the summer because that's when them boys get thirsty (laughs)
0: that's
2: that's when you need that's when you need that cold cold summer beer you wrote that in the script (laughs) i did i did i wrote that's when them boys get thirsty with three y's that's stop that's in the script all
1: right we'll let josh decide on that one all right well finally the law also set confiscation as the punishment for breaking these laws Uh, So if you brewed your beer with other ingredients or you charged too much for it, uh, the local popo would show up and seize your beer from you. The laws also provided the Bavarian government with the right to institute rationing methods for barley should the price of barley rise too high due to unforeseen circumstances. Um, I remember reading somewhere that the rationing was part of this reason, right? So the reason that you could only use barley and not wheat was because the bakers were like, hey, bread's more important than beer uh i mean we, we all know that's false. <laughs> that's not true <laughs> we all know that's false. no german has ever said that but
2: maybe in 1516 when most people were like dirt poor but actually in in the german states at the time people were pretty well off that's, in, in munich I they i really
1: don't believe that but you could drink you could eat some bread and probably survive longer There's than a person to France beer. so the there, there might be there might be something there we don't like government rationing but you know maybe the germans do something yeah.
0: Um, so more modern versions of the law actually did allow for the inclusion of yeast, coriander, bay leaf and wheat but the original version that uh, was written before actually written before yeast was discovered. so its role in the production of beer was completely unknown at the time P- possibly I don't know for sure but um, so that actually brings up an interesting topic. Uh, there's some debate as to whether ancient and medieval beer was typically fermented with a specific addition of yeast uh, like modern beer. Uh, some scholars think that beer is actually fermented by allowing just naturally occurring yeast, which grow on most kinds of barley to act on the brew. Um, brewers, would not they wouldn't necessarily like pitch yeast specifically into the beer. Uh, the natural yeast on the barley would just sort of do its work on its own, um, the way it does in actually some styles that are still made today, like uh, Belgian iambics. Lambics,
2: yeah. That's with an L. Maybe it's
0: it's a very poetic Belgian beer. <laughs> Belgian you Iambics. Know. You don't know? <laughs> Iambics. Sorry, Belgian, Belgian Lambics. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, however, um, so others think that dedicated breweries were actually already aware of the importance of yeast in beer by the time the uh, Reinheitskiboot. Yeah, Is that right? That's, yeah, you got it. That's the words? Yeah. Um, they just, they didn't understand its exact, like, microbiotic properties. Um, so in Sweden, for example, yeast was a known ingredient in beer by around 1555. But either way, the Reinheitsgebot law does not uh, mention yeast in its list of acceptable uh, ingredients. It was actually until the 1800s that yeast was added to the list, uh, e- even though it was like almost certain, well, it was certainly being used in beer production before then, uh, whether the Germans knew it or not.
2: Yeah, I mean, Yeast was certainly being used in the production of beer, because it has to be, but whether that was naturally occurring yeast or, you know, pitched yeast is probably up for more debate. Anyway, uh, I think we should transition to talking about the, the sort of the effects of the Reinheits um because the Bavarian order of 1516 was certainly, like you said, John introduced to prevent. Price competition with bakers for wheat and rye. The restriction of beer grains to just barley was definitely meant to ensure the availability of affordable bread, as wheat and rye were reserved for use by the bakers. So that was a part of it, but it's also been argued that the rule had a protectionist role, as beers from northern Germany often contained additives that weren't present in Bavarian beer, and the Bavarians, you know, probably meant to <laughs> ensure that those beers couldn't be imported into Bavaria and sold there so that there would be greater market share for Bavarian-produced beers.
1: I think it's pretty cool because we get to see like a public choice thing going on here. Um, when we talk about regulation, you kind of have, like the public interest side, Pe- regulators are regulating to protect the public in some way, uh, like in this case, consumer protection. Um, but you also have the other side – um, where there's going to be self-interested parties that want regulations for certain reasons. So you have, you know, the bakers that are saying we, we want our wheat prices not to go up, so we don't have competition for our supply. Uh, and you also have the brewers themselves not wanting uh, the outside competition from the northern Germany brewers as well. Uh, and we discussed this in the earlier episodes, um, but religious conservatism definitely played a role on the adoption of this regulation in Bavaria. Uh, the writers of the law may have intended to suppress the use of plants uh, that were allegedly used in pagan rituals, such as gruet.
2: Yeah, so before hops were commonly used in beer, the predominant flavoring agent was this sort of herb mix called gruet, which some uh, I suppose some German people thought was also used in pagan rituals, uh, which, you know— on a more practical side aside from whether they were used in pagan rituals or not which i actually don't know uh Gruet does not have the same preservation effects that hops have so the replacement of gruit with hops is the predominant flavoring and preservation um uh, ingredient in beer was one of the sort of main developments in in, in beer and that's one reason why uh Gruet was sort of shunted out with this law
1: was it was it bitter like hops?
2: Yeah, it was. It was a bittering agent. It just didn't have the same because hops have these uh, lanulins, um lapulins I don't know. They have these compounds in them that preserve the beer, that make it last longer and protect it from bacterial infection and that sort of thing. Groot didn't have any of that. Uh, he was just a giant tree person. <laughs> <laughs> just the voiced of by the Gal- Vin Diesel. He's just the guardian of the Galaxy. <laughs> Groot didn't have any preservation effects. It was just a flavoring agent. Interesting.
1: Uh, along with Gruet, the uh, Reinheits, um also excluded other problematic methods of preserving beer, such as soot, stinging nettle, and henbane, as we discussed earlier.
2: Yeah, and, and aside from the sort of consumer protection side of things, because obviously you don't want people putting ingredients like stinging nettles and... Hensbane? I mean, maybe you don't. <laughs> Do you I, I, Hensbane I like Hensbane-flavored beer?
0: <laughs> I like adventurous
2: flavors, Drew. <laughs> Do you like the flavor of soot, Josh? Because that's what you would have without the Reinheitskaboot. <laughs> I mean, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> I'll try anything, anything once. once. <laughs> 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 anyway, it's uh, it's likely that the Bavarian beer laws did actually play a, a pretty strong role in pushing other competitive uh, competing beer styles out of the German market, um, and that was probably by design. Bavaria insisted on its application, uh, on the Reinheitskaboot's application throughout Germany as a precondition of German unification in 1871, because the Germany that we think of when we think of Germany didn't exist until 1871. It was just a bunch of disparate states ruled by dukes and elector counts and emperors and Frederick of Saxony and all of this different stuff. Until eighteen seventy one when it unified in the German sort of first German Federation. Although
1: technically the Germany as we know it today also split after World War II. That's true into and West Germany.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a region of a region which has had many different cracks throughout history. But anyway, in the eighteen seventies when Germany was unifying, the Bavarians said, Look, we're not gonna join your stupid club unless you follow our beer laws. And that move encountered strong resistance from brewers outside Bavaria. So, ultimately, the imperial law uh, in 1873 uh, that was passed only taxed the use of non-hops, barley, and water type ingredients rather than banning them when they were used by northern German brewers. And one of the reasons the Bavarian laws encountered such resistance was because many other regions in Germany had their own unique styles of beer, many of which used ingredients other than barley, water, and hops. I guess
1: guess this is kind of – you can show that Americans might be a little bit more badass than – the Germans were. Because we don't really hear of like the Northern German beer rebellion, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if they didn't rebel at this tax <laughs> that we know of. I mean, maybe they did. Maybe it's like I, a leak in history.
2: I don't think they rebelled. I mean, they were like happy enough to not have their choice ingredients banned, but like ultimately it did push many of those styles out of the market, including Northern German spiced beer and cherry beer, uh which sounds great. I would love to try cherry beer. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, but it it led to the domination of the German beer market by Pilsner style beers, which I think is unfortunate because I'm not as big a fan of Pilsners as I am of any other kind of beer. But well, uh, to be fair, like if I were going to drink a Pilsner, it would definitely be a German Pilsner. I would I would drink a Czech Pilsner actually. Weirdly, okay, actually it is, tec- it is technically a... a Czech beer. It, it is. Know, yeah.
1: The Germans kind of stole
2: it. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, I like not to sh- shit all over German Pilsners. Like it's a fine beer, but like. It's just not my favorite style of beer. American pilsner. That's, that's absolutely 100% true. Um, but only a few regional beer varieties did survive this trend of pilsnerization, uh, including Kolsch from Kolner, uh, Goza from Go- uh, Gozler? Gozler? I have no idea. Uh, and Dusseldorfer Altbier. These sort of flavors and some seasonal variations also survived the implementation of the Reinheitsgebot across I'm all of Germany. assuming they
1: survived because they have awesome
2: names. So. Yeah, and they were, they're were they tasty. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're
0: talking about this as like old German beer purity laws, but actually the law wasn't applied consistently across all of Germany until 1906, and it wasn't actually f- formally referred to as the Reinheitsgebot uh, until... I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Uh, until the, uh, the Weimar Republic... And uh, the Bavarian law... Wait, so you can pronounce Weimar perfectly. (laughs) You're struggling with Reinhardt's kaput. Okay, that's like two syllables. That's That's true. Yeah. Um, So the Bavarian laws actually caused a lot of problems, even from their earliest adoption. And even after the uh, unification and broader adoption, uh, these Bavarian laws were stricter than most in other parts of Germany. Uh, So this caused a lot of legal challenges in the 50s and 60s uh, and in March 1987, sorry in a case brought by French brewers, the European Court of Justice found that the Reinhardt's Gebrut, uh, was protectionist and therefore in violation of Article 30 of the Treaty of Rome. So this ruling concern, it was only dealing with imported beer, so Germany chose to continue applying the law to uh, beer brewed in, in Germany. So it's, it's kind of a weird reversal where it's like, before this, this is the law that, you know, I, I think for the most part sort of screwed over foreigners, but like now it's only applied to Germans and it's only restricting Germans which I think is kind of interesting like uh, evolution the application
1: it seems like this this legal argument is kind of similar to at least to me it seems like it's kind of like a federalism thing in America where states can kind of do whatever they want sometimes as states long as it can doesn't kind of do whatever they want John as long as Nelson, it doesn't like actually violate the constitution explicitly
2: yeah um, and they can even do things that violate the constitution yeah sometimes.
1: but but they're not necessarily regulated by federal government uh mm. So it seems like here, like, you have the European Court of Justice who can kind of, you know, they can regulate across Europe, uh, but they can't necessarily tell German what <laughs> Germany Germans what to do within Germany. And I think so, the Germans like it that way. I think most, most states do. Um, I and mean, we might be able to talk about that a little bit later, but you definitely have some sort of, like, state sovereignty issues Yeah. Um, when something like the European Union is introduced and has all sorts of crazy consumer protection regulations well, that are messing with things.
2: And the dark truth of the Reinheitsgebot is that it's not actually a consumer protection regulation. Like, that's that's something the Germans wouldn't want to tell you, and we'll get more into this later, but it's really more a marketing tactic. Mm-hmm. They get to slap this, you know, long, very German word with lots of syllables on their beer, and it says, this is this is Guten, this is German beer, this is made here, this is our stuff. And people drink that stuff. You know, they they love it. So, I, and, and in modernity it is, and People will, will tell you when they think about it that it really is more about the marketing.
0: I mean, for what it's worth, like I liked German beer before I found out about purity laws, so you know. Yeah,
2: well, there, you know, and it still does have impacts on the quality of German beer for sure. sure. But we'll talk about that more. Yeah, later. And I'm not, but, I'm not really sure
1: that is that really that heavily enforced. I think it is more of a cultural
2: cultural phenomenon within well, Germany now. But it is though. It is pretty heavily enforced. I mean, it is the law has changed a lot over time. There's a lot more stuff that you can put in beer made in Germany now than you could in 1516. Right. For one yeast, like we said, but there is there are still craft brewers in Germany that are like, hey, this law is restrictive and it's keeping us from actually experimenting, and we don't like it. But everybody else is like, too bad.
1: <laughs> uh, so even more recently, the uh had caused other issues for non lager and non pilsner brewers in Germany. Uh, after unification and ni- reunification in nineteen ninety, the Noisler. Closter Brewery? Is that Maybe Closter. I have Kloster? no idea. You
2: know what? I, I should have typed out how that one was pronounced. That's all right.
1: Uh, so it's a former, former monastery brewery in the East German town of Nudel, random name. Nudel. Nudel.
2: Noodle. Mm. The Eastern Neutzel. German town. Of I'm gonna Neutzel. go with Neutzel.
1: Um It was warned to stop selling its Schwarzbier, which means black beer, since it contains sugar. Um, after some negotiations, the brewery was allowed to sell it under the name a Schwarzer Opt which means black obit, but it couldn't legally label it as beer. Uh, this decision was repealed by the Federal Administra- Ad- Administrative Court of Germany uh, through a special permit and after legal disputes lasting 10 years, which is ridiculous. Um, and this was known as the Brandenburg Beer War. Uh, Neutzeler Kloster Brewery gained the right to call Schwarzopt beer again. Um, it's interesting like this, this does kind of line up a little bit with some of the regulations we have in America pretty sure we talked about this in our first episode oh like bourbon um, can't be called that bourbon. Like, yeah, bourbon. yeah bourbon can't yeah. be called bourbon unless it's a very specific type of thing um there's also there's also, like all sorts of crazy regulations put out by uh, atf or the fda on naming things and, like i personally don't think that like names are that big of a deal yeah um but like some people do i guess and like well this is even more you of you can't thing. call a
2: beer a beer unless it's yeah, these laws. and in the EU, this is a big thing in the EU too, the, the naming regulations. But in the EU, you can't call feta cheese feta cheese unless it's actually from Greece. Interesting. Um,
0: you know, to be perfectly honest, like I don't actually like hate the restriction on like bourbon labeling. I mean, if I'm going to like buy bourbon, I want it to be like actual legit bourbon. bourbon. Yeah, know, I think the distinction here is that like beer is like it has like a, a broader meaning than what the German law defines it. Like it's something that's you know. Existed across so many different countries in mm-hmm. like so many different formats, yeah. whereas like bourbon is like a specific thing that originated in a specific area with a specific style. I, th- I think there's that's true. I think there's an important distinction. Yeah, so I guess a closer
1: know. closer metaphor there would be like you can only call whiskey something that's from Kentucky or something. If like we were to do that, yeah, that would be
0: that
2: would be awful. Be a yeah, bad. I agree that the Rhine Heights uh, sort of not allowing you to call something beer unless it's made with this very specific list of ingredients is dumber than you know people not being allowed to call their non-bourbon substance bourbon like but there's a there's a narrower prescription for what is bourbon and what is not in fact bourbon right. than there is for like what's beer and what's what's not beer like schwarz beer i, I mean i'm great i i, I love that that newsler Kloster can call schwarz schwarzer opt beer again because i love Schwarzbier. beer it's like my favorite german seasonal varietal but it's good beer. It's, it's great it's the best well <laughs> I mean, I would say Doppelbach is the king of beers. It's a solid beer, though. Yeah, sure. Schwarz beer, very solid. But, yeah, I think it's it's good that they can call that beer again, because that's what it is. It's beer. It's a black beer. But, anyway, uh, as of the most recent revisions and versions of the Reinheitsgebot Law, the revised beer uh, Gazettes, which Ooh. is— I think that was close. I was—you I was, I was, know what? I'm going to give myself that one. Uh, the Provisional Beer Law is what that means of 1993, which replaced the earlier regulations. This is a slightly expanded version of the Reinheitsgebot, stipulating that only water, malted barley, hops, and yeast be used for any bottom-fermented beer brewed in Germany, and it also allows for the use of powdered or ground hops and hops extracts, which are not real hops, as well as stabilization and fining agents such as PBPP. Top-fermented beer, like lagers, Uh, Lockers are top fermented, right? I think so. You know what? It might be the other way around. Anyway, top fermented beer is subject to the same rules with the addition that a wider variety of malted grains can be used as well as pure sugars for flavor and coloring. So that's how they got
1: away with being beer That is how they
2: got away with Schweitzer being being beer, yes. Uh, The law's applicability was further limited by a court ruling in 2005, which allowed for the sale of beer with different ingredients as long as it was not labeled beer, which just seems kind of dumb to me but that's what it is i mean like we said before if something's beer you should be legally allowed to call it that (laughs) like uh but you know it's not like there's a very fine line between beer and wine or or something like that. i mean it seems kind of like
1: the inverse of what we discussed where cider is a wine technically legally in the united states under u.s law so yeah seems kind of dumb but i guess you need you need labels for something yeah for a reason. I don't know. Like, if you
2: put cherries in your beer, you can't legally call it beer in Germany, even if it's 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 a beer. But whatever. I mean, exceptions to the current rules can also be sought, and they have been granted in the past, uh, especially to allow uh, gluten-free beer to be labeled as beer despite the use of different ingredients.
0: That's one exception I might dispute
1: personally.
2: Yeah i th- I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think it can be beer if it's well. Okay, I just said that. Yeah, I mean, if beer made yeah, with beer rice beer is probably is like beer the too. The bread of
1: drinks. And like, yeah, you can make bread from so you rice. Can have bread. You can. It's, like, it's not that it's, bad. It's like a crime yeah. against God, though. Really, it's not. It's really not that bad.
2: Gluten-free bread is not that bad.
1: I like gluten-free pasta. So maybe yeah, that's not too bad either.
2: Well, but if you're making your beer from like beans, like gluten-free pasta is made from, that's not beer. <laughs> that's you created some <laughs> awful abomination. That's that's so not like that's not a beer. Situation. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was in terms of sort of the, the impact, and the reception of uh, these regulations, um, a lot of people in Germany actually like it. Uh, they like these purity laws. Um, just in terms of the general public, the actual German brewers, uh, a, lot, a lot of them have argued that the law has slowed Germany's adoption of trends in the world beer market. Because um, if you look at the United States, I, I mean, there's just been this explosion in the craft brewing scene, um, people making these sort of like innovative, you know, uh, very different, unique beers with all these kind of crazy additives. Like You've got beers made with, you know, like bananas and oranges and blueberries and cannabis. I haven't tried that for the record, but cannabis like that oh, exists. God,
2: every day we stray further and further from God's life. <laughs> is
1: that like just a Colorado thing? <laughs> like, is it called no, Get actually... Twisted in a
2: Jar? Or, or maybe maybe we'll just stick to beer that's made with actual grains. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> Mom, for if you're listening to
0: this. <laughs> uh, um anyways like most german b- beer is brewed the exact same way it's been for centuries uh, and the law is set up to keep it that way uh so and that, that you know like i said at least good quality beers yeah. that is you know the average german absolutely loves it uh but you know it's it's arguable that it's it's outdated because it, res- it restricts innovation by these younger more adventurous <laughs> brewers who want to try new things and in reality, the law allows for lots of additives, which are used by mass producers to cut costs and increase clarity in the brew, like uh, diatomaceous diadomace- earth. Yeah. So yeah, that, that and the PVPV uh, that we mentioned earlier, um, as well as allowing for the use of hops extract uh, rather than like, real actual hops. Uh, so a lot of these chemicals are or they're allowed in production in German beers as long as the final product contains nothing which would enter into a chemical reaction with the brew.
1: And certainly, I can't believe that Germany or the EU or whoever's in charge of consumer protection over there like don't they don't have like consumer protection laws on this stuff? They don't need some sort of you know centuries-old law saying you can only have water and grain and hops in this thing. Like, there's probably yeah. plenty of other regulations that are protecting these beers from being low quality. Like, there's, I almost guarantee there's no chance that this law is actually producing substantive differences in quality. It's certainly. Well. It's like, I mean, it certainly cha- changes what German beer is. Yeah. For uh, good like, or bad. But it doesn't, I don't, I really don't think it's contributing, at least not now, to quality. Certainly, yeah. like, it's contributed to the centuries-old tradition of German beer being good beer. Yeah, and I think absolutely that's, that's probably indisputable. Yeah,
2: and, and I think it, like like I said before, uh, in many ways the Reinheitsgebot is is more of a marketing tactic and sort of a national mythos than an actual consumer protection law. Because you know, given what we know now about, hey, if you steep your grain in pesticides, maybe pesticides aren't good to drink. There isn't, you know, the law still allows for. It's not granular enough to like stop pesticides getting into a beer for example so like it's perceived as the secret to great german beer and being able to say you're in compliance with the famous beer purity law is great for marketing your beer but really it's far from essential to produce good beer i mean lots of great beer can be made with things other than water barley and hops and the germans you know clearly know this the fact that the law has changed so much over time to accommodate other grains and ingredients shows the fact that even in germany the Reinheitsgebot is far from a magic beer-making golden rule. At most, it's like a best practice. Yeah,
1: and I mean, you see, you even see breweries in America that use this law as kind of a quote-unquote best practice. Yeah. Which is actually just a marketing technique. Like Penn Brewery in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, like claims that they use the Reinheitsgebot. In the, at least in their pilsner, they're 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 you know they're. But that's not hard to do. Beer. Like yeah, it's not hard to do. But they those can, are the ingredients of a pilsner. But they, <laughs> like, they claim it, and they yeah. are able to use it as a marketing yeah. Trader technique. Trader Joe's
2: has has uh, beer that that they say is compliant with the Reinheitsgebot, which right. it is, I guess. It, like yeah, I mean, it's, so what? Is it, is it like
1: kosher hot dogs? Like aren't all hot dogs kosher now? I don't.
2: Oh, well, I think you can still put pork in I a hot dog. I guess you can. Dog. You can still make them.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: Well, I think the thing too is it's. It's un, like you said it's unnecessary to ensure quality of beer I think it's unnecessary as a marketing tool I mean frankly like people know the quality of German beer like if you've had a German beer like you know it's good like I don't like I don't think that like if they um you know undid or if they repealed that law like or that set of laws I guess the, you know suddenly like all German breweries are just gonna like start dumping trash in their beer like, well, right, they, and I
1: don't think most people who drink German beer even know about this law do they like uh, I the Germans know about it I certainly didn't I don't think Josh did I, I did not <clears> I mean Drew did because this is his topic but like also, at I'm least, at least, you're just a huge inter- freaking nerd. You're just a nerd. Yeah. Like, but yeah. it like, looks like internationally, like Americans are dumb. They don't, they don't know that <laughs> Germans have some sort of ancient law making their beer good.
2: Like, but they but the Germans know. They,
1: sure, but and like, it
2: matters to the Germans. Like you ask the, the Germans, like, would I'm you, would you like for the Rheinhautsgeburt to be repealed? And many of them will say, no, we like this beer. Uh, we like the beer that we make here in Germany, and this is an essential <laughs> part of that of that process. And to your point, Josh, about how it's not like breweries would start dumping crap into the beer if the law was repealed, like, you might be right, but I do think that there is a, a role that the Reinheitsgebot historically and even possibly presently serves in ensuring that German beer actually is good. Like, you look at mass-market German beer, which is made with barley, water, hops, wheat, et cetera, and you compare that with the mass-market American beer, which is made mostly with adjunct grains, and that's in quotes... Like rice and corn, and the difference is unbelievable. I mean, the German stuff is made in equally vast quantities and with equally industrial techniques, but it actually tastes good.
0: Oh, sure, but like, like don't get me wrong. I think there are probably going to be some German brewers that start to cut corners where they mm-hmm. can. But like, I think there, like, there's still going to be a na- demand for quality beer, and like repealing those laws isn't going to change that. And that means that there are going to be brewers that continue to make like good
2: quality and beer. That may that may really be down more to the influence that the law has had on the culture. Germany oh, sure. sort of its lasting impact on the beer preferences of the German people. But I also think that there is like a, a sort of simple, you know, the law simply demands that the grains used in beer be, you know, beer grains and not chicken feed. But like beyond that, I don't actually think the beer purity law is really that much of a golden seal. It's more of a golden calf. It's just something that, Oh, sick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Moses. What? Uh, it's something that the the Germans get to say, our beer is made according to this ancient law, and that makes it good. When really, you know, maybe, but also, what makes it good is that German people love and demand good beer. I mean, they're, Jeff,
1: the more I think about, it, like, maybe there—I mean, there is somewhat of an argument. So you have German beer is a is a brand. Yeah. Um, when I go to a German, some sort of you know German bar, pub, whatever they're called, beer garden, beer garden. Beer garden. Like, I'm, I'm not necessarily looking at brands. Like, I'm just I'm just getting a beer. Oh, yeah. I have From no a idea German, what the German brands are. I have no are. idea what really? German
2: brands even yeah, it's are. It's like, Weinstefaner, Pauliner. So, so, okay. I mean,
0: I, like, I recognize now that you say it, but like, because I just recognize seeing that on the menu. Like, I can't, and like, I, I say until recently, I couldn't differentiate
1: between like, what half of the beer name was the brand and what half was like. That's the fair. I, <laughs> I still don't, to yeah. be honest. And so when I go, like, when I go to a, like a German beer garden, I'm going to drink German beer. I'm and so what? What that is? That is its own brand. And so it's it's like saying a German beer is a is a beer is just as good as saying like I'm drinking a Budweiser. I'm drinking a Yingling. I'm drinking a Great Lakes. Like you're drinking a German beer, and it is its own brand, and to some extent, it needs to be protected. And maybe this law is doing that in the same sense that trademark law in america protects a brand although
0: to be fair like that's yeah. a very american centric view i'm sure like obviously germans know the distinction between german beer the, brands and i'm sure uh, for the most, record they very much do i'm sure like most other europeans are I'm also sure, a good right. bit more familiar yeah. so you know maybe like that protects like the german brand here but it also keeps individual german brands from differentiating themselves both that's here and around europe you know you can't Come up with um you know these little, like cool you know innovative additions like uh Bud Light Lime. Um, oh yeah, Bud Light Lime. <laughs> you know you've, what would, you. Know, where would the world be
2: without Bud Light Lime?
0: Oh, you know because I mean if somebody asks you like oh hey what what do you put in your beer it's like oh these same couple ingredients that literally everyone else does
2: like you can't really make a name for yourself. You know like that, that is true. Like I have to mm-hmm. say like as much as I love it and as much as it's improved my life like beyond measure <laughs> probably more than any one th- other thing has <laughs> Wow! like the degree of golden happiness that german beer has brought me like it all kind of tastes the same mm-hmm. like it tastes great like it, it all tastes the same n- amount of greatness but like to me uh, a Weinstephaner lager versus like a hofbrau munchen lager there isn't as it's a huge difference. Although I'm sure after
1: like 8.4 billion liters, the Germans can tell the difference between all the Maybe,
2: beers. yeah. Or maybe they just don't care. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they're happy with like their fantastic samey tasting beers. <laughs> I mean, there, there may be some
0: distinctions that like if you're more clear to it, you know, like you it, a it's a thing how egg. like, especially in terms of like regional water, like for example, mm, yeah. like kind of American analog, you know, um, I know a few New Yorkers and like they're very adamant that like the water in New York is better for like making bagels than it is like elsewhere in the country. I'd believe it. Like that's like that's a thing that
1: So like the is. polluted water of New York City makes those bagels taste really good. Yeah. Apparently. It's
2: also possible that people in New York are just more experienced with bagels and therefore know how to make a better bagel. But like I will grant you there is something about the beer in Cleveland that makes it taste incroyable. Uh, I don't you know taste, why like, I went French there's, there. there's but... a little bit of a
1: fiery taste to the beer, <laughs> it could be because the river caught on fire <laughs> yeah. 40 years no, ago. No, it, it actually tastes like, taste like bizarrely
2: clean. Like, know, yeah, like Great Lakes. Great Lakes is incredible. So good. I mean, this is just like a, pay now, now we're just being like, pay us for, pay us Great Lakes. Pay us Great Lakes. <laughs> now, now pay we're pay just like. please? <laughs> pay us no, pay us now. Um, we're just descending into beer, American beer nerddom now, but like. It's because we're Americans. Yeah. But like, I've had so many great beers that were, that were from Cleveland and you don't necessarily get that same, but like I'll drink a lager from Cleveland and I'll drink a lager from say like Maryland and I can tell the difference even though it's the same kind of beer. Mm -hmm. I drink two German lagers and I cannot tell the difference. So maybe some of that is down to Germany being small and have it, no, but of course it has differing water qualities in the different parts of Germany. Of course, that I mean, it's small as a country, and it's not that small, but like,
1: it's small compared to America, though. yeah.
2: Well, everything is, but like, I think on the whole, the Rheinheitsgebut has been good for Germany, but it there's a very good argument to be made that it may be restricting its ability to enter the 21st century market of craft, mm-hmm. explosive craft beer growth. Oh, yeah. That's driven out the crappy American macro brews. Yeah I, think
0: yeah. yeah, I mean, I think like there was. I think throughout history, overall, it has definitely like had some pretty significant benefits to mm-hmm. the German beer market. But I think it has definitely like outlived its usefulness. Yes,
2: and it has had, as we mentioned, deleterious effects: mm. the loss of the cherry and the spicy, spiced northern German beers. That's. I mean, the tragedy right. is probably not the right word to use for that, but that's unfortunate, right? Mm. Um, and this, I think, this opens up a broader discussion too of the role
1: of laws to protect tradition or protect one's culture mm. um versus individual liberty or innovation um i think this is a kind of a good example of you know there there might actually be a role that it's still playing good or bad in protecting beer culture in germany but as german courts themselves have have mentioned in some of these recent court cases in the last 20 years or so it does st- stifle like individual liberty which has been found to be unconstitutional in the german constitution the european union is definitely not a fan of this law that's kind of inhibiting uh german brewers from exercising their liberty and whatever in the way they want um and i I don't know how to feel that like as i mean as someone who's generally pro-liberty pro-economic freedom in everything like i generally think that people should be able to do what they want but i also Really like tradition, love German beer. <laughs> and I also like culture, and I think culture is important yeah. and needs to be protected in some way, whether you know, it's the forceful hand of the government, generally not a huge thing. The fan invisible of that. hand of the market. Um yeah, but maybe maybe the market would be enough. And if we got if they got rid of this law, it might be unpopular. Um so it probably won't ever happen, at least not anytime soon. But like if they did, I don't think the German beer market's going to just descend into madness <sighs> into
2: nothing. But, See, this brings up another good question of how did the American beer market get so crappy for so long? Prohibition. It was prohibition, yeah. <laughs> but, like, yeah, I guess it's prohibition. Yeah. So do, do, I, I want to believe that the market would, like, suffice to, like, shelter these varietals of incredible craft and, like, tradition. But even in Germany, like, their beer is very good because it's made with generally pretty good ingredients and to pretty good recipes. And they've been doing it for a very long time. But, like, it's not made by craftsmen it's made by large companies sometimes multinational companies but they're you know brewed in giant vats it's not like there's this small tradition of craftsmanship like we associate that with the german beer brand mm-hmm. but for the most part it's brewed the same way an important part of, are here and an important just part is better because it has better ingredients
1: an important part of individual liberty is like the liberty to fail so if germany has a culture where they literally only want reinheit's beer and you have a bunch of startups that are trying to like make their hipster craft beers yeah. to match match the American market with coriander. Market with the coriander and, and I just want to
0: say for the record, I've had a couple of beers of coriander and it gives me like a baloney aftertaste.
1: Like yeah. I can't. Really? Do it. I it's... love the taste of coriander in a beer. <sighs> yeah, just... but I'm. But yeah, man, you know, maybe they're gonna make something like not your father's root beer or something really weird wow. that definitely like is super against this law. Yeah. And the Germans are like, heck no! Like this is disgusting. We don't want this, and it's just gonna fail. And I don't that the demand the like international demand for non-reinheit's beer the german beer is going to be big enough to for these people to sustain their businesses yeah and but i think they should be i mean i think they should be allowed to have the chance yeah me too i think they should be given the liberty to come up with all sorts of weird craft brews if the germans hate it they go out of business and they just go back to this lobbying kind of de facto in in place and yeah. i think that's fine
2: and at the end of the day i think like I said, the Germans do know this, and that's one of the reasons why their beer law has broadened in, in scope so much to include so much more than just barley. Right. But um, maybe one of the things that, like, even if the if the law was gone, German people would probably still want to drink good beer. And here in the United States, our tastes changed because of marketing tactics after the end of Prohibition by large brewers who were cutting corners and cutting costs, they, you know, the American palate changed until, right up until sort of the craft brewing revolution started, and now we realize, oh my god, beer can taste good again, and I want that. That's, that's, that cultural force may never have come to play in Germany, because it had such a long tradition of people actually appreciating the flavor of beer.
1: And I feel like a merit jerk saying this, but like, America, at least in america we claim this i don't even know it's true internationally but like americans at least claim that we're like more innovative and like i don't more creative true. than other countries and it's probably not true but like i don't know maybe it is and so maybe we're just more willing to try things and like be more innovative i think with we're just like a,
2: a massive uh, just a huge market like a bunch of really rich people buying crap all the time and so there's a bunch of people trying crap all the time here in the united states that's probably true yeah but maybe we're more innovative too i don't know
1: maybe
0: yeah you know, it'll be really interesting to see how like, these these sort of growing challenges to the uh how these challenges sort of shake out. Um, yeah, I think that's our show for today. Uh, if you enjoyed it, feel free to subscribe and share us. And you can like us on Facebook as The Whiskey Rebels Podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at Whiskey Rebcast. Uh, this has been The Whiskey Rebels. I'm Josh Evans.
2: I'm Drew Brekba. And I'm John Nelson.
0: Enjoy our podcast responsibly.